Well, welcome to today's episode. All right, Tanya, I want you to think back to when you were five or six. Okay. You walk out into the backyard, you look up at the night sky, and thus is born your desire to be an astronaut. Yes. However (laughs) short-lived it may have been in reality, it kind of sticks with us for a while. Well, today we get to have a curious conversation with Steve Rader, who is the Deputy Director at NASA's Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. Steve, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So I got to ask, I mean, all of us at some point in our lives have dreamed of being an astronaut or working at NASA, and you actually get to do it. But what is it that led you there? I mean, why, why NASA for you? Oh, well, I was, uh, I was that little kid, you know, dressed up as an astronaut playing with rockets. So for me, uh, it, it was a lifelong dream. But interestingly enough, I, I actually didn't think I would be at NASA. I thought that was reserved for you know, doctors, uh, PhDs, and scientists. And so when I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree, I just didn't expect I would uh, get there, but then uh, found a job doing mission control and uh, ended up working on life support systems right out of school and then moved on to software and then on to various other projects. And 30 years later, uh, I get to work uh, at the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. So it sounds like a really um, interesting place to work. Can you tell us the origin story for this uh, center? Sure. So the center is actually, um, they work across NASA and across the whole federal government. Um, And it came out of some work uh, in about 2009, 2010, where one of our groups, uh, our human health and performance group, got a really big budget cut. And so Dr. Jeff Davis, who led that organization, uh, went out to industry and benchmarked, you know, what's working, how is R&D working, how is innovation happening around uh, in industry, and came across uh, this open innovation, this crowdsourcing. And so he ran pilots with Inocentive and uh, Yet2 and an internal crowd at NASA, and they were really successful. Um, and out of that, uh, there actually was some notice uh, at the Office of uh, Science and Technology Policy at the White House and they were also trying to kind of get the government engaged in open innovation. And they said, you know, hey, you guys have some, some good experience in this. Can you stand up a center of excellence and help the rest of the government, uh, as well as NASA, to understand these tools and start to adopt them? And so kind of that's how it started. And uh, we've been going ever since, uh, trying to learn more along the way and help uh, projects across the government to, to use open innovation. I was really impressed. You you have 475 projects you guys have done so far. Um, tell me a little bit about some of those. Oh, gosh. Um, so these are crowdsource challenges. So uh, we use what we call curated crowds. So we actually have uh, 19 different companies that we use uh, that each have their own crowd, right? So TopCoder is 1.5 million software developers and data scientists. and Inocentive is 400,000 problem solvers. Uh, GrabCAD is this community of like 7 million mechanical engineers and designers. And so we've done a whole series of challenges, like you said, and we have done everything from a logo kind of graphic for a, for a project all the way up to engineering designs, robot, robotic arm designs. We've done data science algorithms, you know, machine learning type algorithms to detect asteroids. Uh, we have done uh, software projects to build kind of the latest and greatest software for the astronauts to use to track their nutrition. Um, we've 
you know, gotten concepts for how to pioneer Mars. Uh, it's, it's really this kind of endless list of both types of projects and uh, the, the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve. So I, as we were talking and, and kind of doing some research, two projects kind of stood out to me. <laughs> um, Honey, I Shrunk the Payload and the Lunar Lou Challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Explain those to me. Sure. Those are actually two pretty recent challenges. Um, Honey, I Shrunk the Payload is really interesting. Uh, both of those actually we ran on HeroX, which is a crowdsourcing contest platform. Um, Honey, I Shrunk the Payloads is, is about uh, a series of payloads we were working on uh, to go to the moon on very, very small robots. And so the payloads, uh, the, what we want to do the science, right? We want those experiments, they have to fit in the, the size of a bar of soap. And so, you know, compared to these huge rack-sized pieces of equipment, uh, we're asking for a really small profile. Uh, and so we put the call out, you know, what could we do in science on the moon and package it down this small? And uh, we ended up getting some amazing designs. In fact, uh, we're just moving on a phase one where we actually selected 14 different uh, winners who all had technologies that were just amazing and kind of helped us get what we want done. And we're moving them into a new phase that's going on right now that's uh, really funding, I think at about a million dollars, uh, a lot of these ideas so they can get developed uh, and go work on the moon. Tell me a little bit about the Lunar Lou Challenge. Sure, the Lunar Lou Challenge is really interesting because it's actually the kind of second uh, potty challenge. We actually had one, uh, I think three or four years ago called the Space Poop Challenge. And, um, you know, it's funny because both of these challenges have ended up being literally record-breaking participation. The, the first one, the Space Poop Challenge, which was about kind of how to deal with human waste in a spacesuit if you're in a contingency and have to live in that suit for like six days. Um, mm -hmm. That one garnered something like 20,000 uh, participants and about 5,000 submissions. And it was just amazing some of the stuff we got out of that. Lunar Lou... Uh, just wrapped up. We just announced the winners last week, and it was about designing a toilet for the lunar lander. As you know, we're building a, a program to, to put uh, a, a man and a woman on the moon in 2024, and so they're having to move really fast, and so the idea was to get a lot of new ideas into that early, and this challenge uh, also was hugely popular. In fact, it had a a, a regular submission uh, as well as a junior category where we engage school kids and uh, just got some amazing designs out of that and uh, the, the team is really excited with what they got. Do you Does this kind of get a, a secondary benefit for you guys in terms of public engagement? Yeah, I, I think it really does. I mean, we've been doing this a while and I continue to get emails from participants, not even always the winner, um, where they'll say, you have made my dream come true of working at NASA. And what we've kind of discovered is that, you know, if you think about it for many years, what we've done for public engagement is said, hey, look at the cool stuff we're doing. Don't you wish you were us? Um, right? I mean, subtly, right? Yeah. Um, and what we're doing by actually opening up these challenges and these problems to the crowd is we're really saying, hey, come help be part of the mission. Help us solve these hard problems, help us kind of be part of this. And as you know, people are passionate about NASA. That's the, you know, there's t-shirt, everyone's wearing a NASA t-shirt, people love it. 
And I will say, I think a lot of why they participate is that they see this as a giving back. They see it as, as participating in this uh, human exploration. I think what I really appreciate about these challenges is it provides a, an avenue for people to get involved who might not be on that kind of conventional NASA track, right? You think engineering or you're a surgeon, that you know, things like that. So I think it's um, kind of democratizing it, which is really awesome. Uh, you talk about open source innovation. It's in the name of the center, Collaborative Innovation. How do you define that? And what are some of the challenges and why has it become so important for NASA? Oh, that's a great question. So we talk about open innovation and what we're talking about is open meaning going outside of your normal group. So that might be just outside of your team to an open innovation uh, platform that's accessing all the employees in a company, or it could be a challenge that's actually going all the way out to everyone in the world. Um, and why that's important is that diversity is the key to innovation. Um, the, you can get a lot of innovation out of deep expertise, but what we found is that's limited. And there's a lot of studies out there that show that if you really want to move the needle forward significantly, you actually have to get out of those very deep kind of narrow domains and you have to actually look around. Uh, part of the thing I talk about a lot when I talk about this is that we are in kind of this unprecedented time of technology explosion. And we, we kind of look around and we know that, but let me just give it some scale. 90% um, of all scientists that have ever lived on the planet are alive today. Think about that. That's <laughs> nine times as many as have ever lived are alive today. And a lot of that's because the population's grown, a lot of countries have gotten richer, there's a lot more scientists and engineers that are, are out there. But also we have some new technologies you know, that, that span across different disciplines. Think about machine learning and cheap sensors and, and software APIs and cheap robotics components and additive manufacturing and blockchain. All of these have a few really interesting characteristics. You can uh, go learn about them easily, you can go buy tools for them that are actually fairly inexpensive and become an expert at using them. But here's the biggest thing. They span almost every industry. Everyone's working machine learning. A lot of people are working additive. A lot of people are working drones and automation. And so what's happening is in the innovation space, the R&D worlds in all of those industries are innovating. And they're creating more and more technology in each of these areas. And so what we're finding is the real innovations are already out there. What crowdsourcing allows you to do is find the people that can connect the dots and actually find the solution that'll work for you. So for instance, John Deere, who actually is doing some amazing stuff in, in machine learning and AI, if they had an algorithm over here in agriculture, I might see a presentation of it and be, that's great for them, but that's not gonna help anything for me, right? But someone who understands their domain and my domain can get, oh, oh no, if you understand what they're talking about, this can apply over here. And in fact, there's a study out of MIT that kind of gets into this. It looked at Inocentive, one of the firms we talked about, and how often uh, they, they solve problems and what the characteristics of those successes were. And what they found was 70% of the time when people solved a problem, it was somebody outside of the domain so that diversity piece is hugely important because the R&D method before that is put five scientists or, or chemists in a chemistry lab and have them innovate, right? Mm -hmm. And this says that's broken. 
But the other thing that study said was 75% of the time, the solution was already known. It already existed. It just needed to be ported over. So you talk about making it accessible. Um, that same company just did a study and they asked at the end of each challenge, you know, would you have hired this person? Like looking at their resume, in retrospect, would you ever ever hired that person? And 80% of the time, the company would not have hired. They would not made it into the company. Um, and if you think about that, that says a lot about how organizations are really isolated from the people that can bring them the most value. So I'm, I'm curious because when you think about open source and, and how your team collaborates, I mean, at its, at its core, like you were just saying, open source is really breaking down the idea of silos, right? It's, it's more this cross-pollination. But how do you, how does that inspire new ways of working across your team and, and how do you build consensus I mean, when you have creative people or um, you know, really any kind of people that are coming together to solve a problem, how do you build consensus and have that collaboration? Yeah, so it's really interesting because the way we're set up is we're kind of brokers, right? So we on the NASA side or the government side, we're connecting people that have problems and then we're basically introducing them to and kind of giving them a contract mechanism to access a company that has a crowd. And so what happens is they'll bring that problem in and a Hero X or a Top Coder or any of our other vendors, they're going to actually sit down with that team and actually formulate the problem in a way that we can then put it out to the crowd. And normally that's a contest. So we'll actually set a prize, you know, anywhere from $10,000 up to $100,000 or whatever, and we'll set the time frame and we'll do the ads for it and get a, bring in the, the people. And that's really setting the stage to bring in that diversity to start working. Uh, some of these will actually have teaming arrangements where the, the crowd can actually team with each other and collaborate. But then when we come down to the finals, we're actually evaluating what comes in, we're bringing those in, and then those ideas we bring into NASA as the winners, we pay for their intellectual property or licensing usually, and we'll bring that in, and then our engineers will then integrate that into our final solution. So when you are kind of throwing these challenges out into the public, is there a different type of urgency that kind of emerges when you're like, oh, this is a really, really good idea? Like what's kind of the chain of command that follows when that happens? Um, it's interesting. Uh, most of the projects that come to us, for whatever reason, are on a tight timeline. They have to get those ideas in and they have to, in order to use them. If you think about it, uh, most of the idea phase in a development project are a very small window, right? Because uh, development, you've got to go find your options, you have to narrow them down, and then you've got to go build that. Uh, and so we often get folks that are uh, in a hurry. I would say, Having a very fixed time, you know, it's usually anywhere from one to three months to run a challenge, uh, that does, that provides a, a ticking clock, right? And that's a deadline that folks have to have. Um, and it does, it does tend to spur folks on. Um, we have different kinds of challenges and they each have kind of different timelines. Mm -hmm. uh, I know in our Centennial uh, Challenges program, that's our big kind of X prize level. They actually will work on like a three to five year timeline sometimes with a million dollar prize with the idea of, hey, we need people to stretch, but we're trying to get people to compete for that goal. If you remember the, the DARPA self-driving car challenge, 
that brought mm -hmm. competitors yeah. to the desert many years before they actually were successful, right? But now if you look across the, the, the self-driving car industry, if you look in all the companies that make up the supply chain for the sensors and everything that makes those, you will find the names of all the people who are on those teams. So those are kind of mm -hmm. more, hey, we're, gonna, mm -hmm. we're trying to spur the technology forward uh, to, to get an industry started versus kind of solving a specific problem, right? Okay, so then we've talked a lot about the good ideas <laughs> and the challenges. <laughs> How do you call through the challenges, I mean, not the challenges, the ideas that are brought up that are just not good? Like, and, and, and do it in a way where people still feel validated. Right, right. Well, it's really important. Um, it's funny in the innovation space, just normal innovation space, not crowdsourcing, we always talk about you always want to be positive about an idea and not try to eliminate it immediately, which is kind of our, our pre-programming, right? We're always trying to figure out why is this not going to work. But it turns out if, if you're not able to listen to ideas and consider them, even if they have holes, what you find is the real solution is usually three or four ideas deep. And so you have to hear the ideas that won't work sometimes to actually get to the one that will work. And so for environments where there's teams, we really encourage people to be careful with that, uh, you know, jumping on why an idea won't work. In the crowd, you are absolutely right. There, there is a curve <laughs> of participation <laughs> and uh, it's like mining, right? There's a lot of ore, but just a few gems, right? Just a few of the valuable things. And what you need is a process to get you there. So really poorly executed crowdsourcing takes a lot of work because you get a lot of submissions. You haven't done your criteria very well, and you have to kind of spend a lot of effort to even find the value. We try to be very mm -hmm. concise in what we're looking for. So the narrower the problem, the easier it is for us to solve. We try to have very clear criteria on what it is we're trying to look for, how will it uh, be defined, what are the performance characters, does it have a mass, do you need to justify that and show us how you got your work and your answer? And then when we put it out to the crowd, it's clear, right? It's clear what they have to do. And then culling those folks that are just lazy, there's a lot of people that participate in these that just, they wanna just throw their one-liner idea over the fence to you <laughs> and hope that it yeah. becomes the new spacecraft. And, you know, that's fine, but, we quickly can cull those out. And in fact, in our contracts with these procurement, with these uh, crowds, these like HeroX and Incentive and the rest, we actually have words in there that says, look, you're only going to hand us to evaluate those submissions that meet all our requirements. And we get them to kind of cull mm -hmm. those. So for instance, Space Poop had 5,000 submissions. They culled those down to the top 87. And we were able to then take those, yeah. look through those, and then uh, figure out which ones were the biggest uh, biggest value for us. Great question, that's though. Awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting. You brought up um, something earlier about the DARPA challenge and that there were essentially competitors in the same space. So how do you kind of manage that environment? Um, you know, for me, what comes to mind, like there could be competing values, there could be, you know, uh, not no desire to collaborate so how do you manage that yeah so normally you really again it depends on the scope so if you're doing that level of challenge like our centennial programs challenge then you're putting a big prize out there and you're kind of incentivizing that entire community around uh, building an industry so teams form that are often academic plus 
uh, some level of commercial with sponsors and they'll actually put a, a design together and they are competitive. They're keeping secrets from each other. They're not trying to, to share in that. Um, and for those kinds of technology types of, of challenges, we see a multiplier. We see that there's private investment at as much as like four times what we put into it. So it's a really great way to accelerate a technology development area. On our, our more core kind of individual challenges, then it's really there's the, there's not a lot of, of collaboration between the people unless there's a special way that they've set that up. In most cases, it's individuals uh, that are, are basically competing. And so depending on if we're going to keep this open or if it's going to be a closed thing and we need that, that intellectual property to be protected, we can actually vary all of those those variables and and depending on what we need we can set the challenge up to where it can accommodate that so if it's something where we don't even want to know people to know this is nasa and we don't want them to know that this they're working on a rocket uh motor then maybe it comes out in the one of these platforms as a hey we need an improved fluid pump you know or we need an improved sensor and a lot of companies that use this, that's their technique. They, they actually put challenges out there all the time with no label of who it is, and they've often abstracted the problem in a way that you can't tell that it's you know, Nike trying to improve their tennis shoes or it's you know, Frito-Lay trying to improve their potato chips. It's, it's a really important piece to this puzzle because that makes, that makes this more commercially viable for companies to use. Do you see any um, primary incentives or um, goals across the projects that you guys have done? Um, so incentives are real interesting, if I'm understanding the question right, is uh, in the crowdsourcing world, right, there's we call like four incentives to pull people in to, to work on a project. Uh, we call it the four Gs, gold, guts, glory, and good. And so for a lot of our challenges, it's about the money, right? We put a $100,000 or $50,000 out there for someone to earn. But the best platforms actually also are playing on those other three Gs. So glory is there's a leaderboard or there's going to be a press announcement about it. And people want the, the limelight. They want credit for their idea. Um, sometimes it's the guts piece. People, you will be amazed at how many people just want to work on a hard problem. Uh, I actually had a conversation earlier today with a platform called Umdina, which brings together like 1,500 data scientists from around the world just to work on hard problems for free for NGOs. And they're just trying to solve hard problems, but it's this hugely talented group that's doing that, not for the fame, not for, for money, but they probably are doing it because it's a hard problem and because they're doing it for the fifth, the fourth G good, right? They're trying to do that yeah. to make a difference, to actually make their mark. And that's actually what we find is a lot of people, like I say, they want to be a part of what NASA is doing. And so they, they'll work on these challenges uh, and, and devote really tens, if not hundreds of hours sometimes to their submission uh, just at the chance. But we find they do that they're also learning, right? They're learning by doing. And a lot of them you'll see multiple times. There's all these, these folks that I've seen on challenges and they'll win one challenge and then you'll see them on another ch platform. They'll win a different challenge and then you'll see them over here and they just become addicted to this stuff uh, and it becomes their, their hobby. It becomes the things that they love to do. Well, and I love that that kind of reflects 
your history. I mean, like you said, you started off on life support and then programming. You've kind of dabbled in a lot of these different, you know, fields that are all related, but but different in their own right. Is there is there a part of you that um, th- does that help fulfill you and, and keep you creative as you go? Oh, yeah. I, I have the best job ever, just by the way, <laughs> because I not only like I, I'm a tech junkie, right? I love what's going on in technology. But what's really great is I get to work with like, you know, 15, 20 different federal agencies on their hardest problems and the coolest things they're trying to do. And at NASA, with all of the cool things we're trying to do. And I get to see what's going on in the open innovation and open talent and the future of work. And it it is truly amazing. And one of the things that that is starting to emerge is while we in our education system have invested heavily in the very deep expert uh, and companies have done the same kinds of thing, we're finally more and more that the generalist that can kind of connect the dots is, is not necessarily more important, but more important than it has been. And that the need for those folks uh, is really actually quite high. Um, so there's, there's some really interesting work going on there. And in the innovation space, you definitely see where diversity uh, is really important. So a lot of these platforms are really interesting because they're starting to provide opportunities. And I think you said the democratization of some of this. We, I love that, right? Because suddenly people who don't look great on a, on a CV, on, on a resume, or they uh, are a, a minority, or they have a disability, are suddenly able to start to contribute, not just to these contests, but to the new open talent economy, the new freelance and gig economy, in ways that just simply weren't possible before. And so I get really excited about that, uh, especially when I see some of these platforms trying to actually make that happen, which I think is really great. All right, we know you have an awesome job and that you probably work a ton, but we are curious to learn if you have any extracurriculars um, because I recently learned and just kind of wanted to share out that Nobel laureates are um, 22% more likely to partake in things like dance, acting, writing, glass blowing, these kind of fun things that let your mind just kind of wander. So what do you like to do on your free time? Yeah, well, I, I don't think I should be compared anywhere in the, the realm that you were just in, uh, but I, I do actually. I, I'm a big believer that, that you should have multiple passions in your life. And uh, so I've been a part of a 20-piece big band for over 20 years, and I play bass there. So cool. And uh, <laughs> I sometimes will uh, volunteer uh, to, to build houses and do construction. So I love all of that stuff. Okay, I got to ask, why bass? Why base? I mean, it looks cool. <laughs> easy. Because it's easy compared to the other stuff. And, you know, you get to, I, I love a good baseline. A good baseline is like, that's the, that's the part that matters. <laughs> Can't go anywhere without a good baseline. All right. So then thinking over the next six months, 12 months, two years, what is it that just really excites you? Oh, um, well, I, I tell you, um, one of my passions that's related to this open innovation piece is, is where we've seen these communities and these, these platforms that are bringing communities together going. And that's in the, the, this open talent marketplace, this gig economy. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but there is a migration going on, a big, huge change going on in the world where we're going from a model of everyone works for companies in traditional ways to a large segment of 
the society working freelance and organizations actually being much more liquid in the way they deal with labor. And I think as I've been working this, what gets me most exciting is this is really necessary. The rate of change is such so fast that you can't actually bring in the people that you need, all the people with the different skills. You just can't do that in a traditional organization and still maintain that organization in the same way. And so these new freelance mechanisms are providing new ways for people to keep up and upskill at a rate that they can actually get those jobs that are being created by the automation and that uh, allow a path uh, from where all the automation is taking the jobs, right? And so that's really exciting to me because I think it does provide opportunities for people to live into their passion. It, it provides a little bit more positive um, kind of future compared to like the robots are going to take all our jobs and we're all going to lose our jobs, right? Which, there, there is truth yeah. to automation is coming for jobs, but there's a, a, a bigger truth that there's a lot of opportunity coming. I tell a story that a lot of people probably don't know, which is um, Snow White was actually, that film was created by about 750 uh, animators. And they, they made set, something like 2 million sketches, hand-drawn sketches uh, and colorings for that. Um, and we now have CAD, you know, uh, software that we can use where that job could probably be done by 10 people now. But if you look at the latest and greatest uh, animation film, something like Iron Man 3, it's 3,700 people on that, on the credits. Yeah. When we get technology that makes things easier, we don't just throw the people away, we do more with it. And now that does require upskilling, it requires work. But there, there's a lot of really amazing opportunities coming. And uh, so I, I, I'm really passionate about that, you can probably tell. Uh, but I think that's part of where the whole world is going. And uh, we want people to live into the good parts. So, I mean, you work for NASA. Is that something you see as being instrumental, this idea of the, the crowdsourcing and the collaboration as being instrumental to us living in other worlds, living on other planets? Um, well, I, I would say it's important organizationally for if you are an organization right now, you need to understand that the workforce and the way it's working is changing significantly, that innovation to keep up with the pace of innovation is not optional anymore. Everyone has to actually be kind of uh, moving forward at a pace that they're not used to. And so using crowds for innovation is one of the key tools that we think is is a way to kind of connect the dots and get those solutions faster um and then i, I think the other part to that is um that we want we need to remain relevant so not only just keeping us uh relevant in terms of how well we're working uh and in, in producing but also how well we're fitting into society right and so all of those are necessary to, to stay competitive. I'd say the other piece I didn't talk about there that's hugely important is the digital transformation and getting, getting to where we can use those tools. Uh, that's gonna be a huge factor as well, but, but they're all related and they're all coming together. So I, all of these are enablers for how the entire world is going to work. Uh, I don't know if it's, the next five or 10 years. I don't know if anyone can predict much farther than any of that, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely gonna be important in the next few years. 
Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation with Tanya and I. And if you want to learn more about what they're doing at COSI, check out in the description below. We'll have some links. Um, maybe even we'll put some links into whatever the latest and greatest challenges that you guys are working on, Steve. Maybe get you a few more ideas. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. And thank you so much for, for watching this curious conversation. And we'll see you next time.